This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the Work Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and I'm so glad you're joining me today. Well, I missed last week, but that's because we were celebrating one year of the Worth Your Time podcast. So go head on over to my website at ericaanderson.com and you can check out the top 10 episodes of the year. If you haven't listened to all of them, I highly recommend you go check out that list because there are some really great conversations that you don't want to miss. I know if you're new to the podcast, I do have like 54 or 55 episodes to catch up on. So those are all a great place to start. Now, today I'm speaking with Lauren Enriquez. She's a mom of four littles, seven and under, and the communications director for the Human Coalition, an organization committed to reaching women in crisis pregnancy and helping them find resources and hope for the future. In today's episode, I talk with Lauren about misconceptions about the pro-life movement and get pretty honest on my own personal thoughts on about a few issues. This is definitely an episode where I talk more than normal, but I hope you'll listen with an open heart and an open mind. I know not all of my listeners agree with Lauren and I on this issue, but it's a genuine conversation that I think articulates well where many pro-lifers are coming from. Now, Lauren is especially articulate at doing this, and I just thank her so much for her wisdom. As usual, anytime I get into any really dicey issues on the podcast, I can feel just a little nervous putting it out, but please know I respect other opinions and I welcome feedback. I love conversation and I think that is the sort of sweet spot for us learning to understand one another and having respect. I approach this topic specifically with a lot of love and a lot of empathy and compassion, so I hope you enjoy this conversation with Lauren Enriquez. Please note the audio is a little messed up in this episode because we had to record um, in a different way and Lauren is in the car, Um, but we really wanted to do this interview and make this conversation work despite a lot of technological difficulties. So um, please note the rest of my episodes do have a little better audio quality, but I thank Lauren for sticking it out with me and and I hope you understand. Just for today's episode, it's not quite as good. All right. All right, Lauren, thank you so much for joining the Worth Your Time podcast today. Thank you, Erica. I'm so excited to be here, and thanks for what you're doing with the podcast. I've had a chance to listen, and it's a really great show. Well, I appreciate you, and I'm so glad that we are connecting. We have, like, connected on Twitter for the longest time, and then we've never talked in person, but um, I feel like we have now that we've (laughs) chatted for the last 10 minutes. So um, I'm trying to get our technology ironed out. Yes, totally. And um, and you're driving around with your baby in the back seat, which is totally cool because I think most of our listeners are moms and, and totally get that. And my kids are napping, so hopefully no one runs in while we're talking. Yes, there you go. Um, so, so tell me about who you are, who your family is, just a little brief bio on you. Sure. Um, I am a mom. I'm 32. I have four kids. They are seven and under, so they're seven, five, four, and seven months. Um, three boys and a girl. I am married to a wonderful man who is from Peru. We share our values, our faith, um, and we are both working full-time trying to raise our family, and I feel like a lot of people will probably just be able to identify with that 
daily struggle of trying to wake up every morning and just do your best. So we're just normal people trying to practice our faith, raise our kids, and do the best we can. So he's from Peru. How did you guys meet? We met in college. I actually took a semester off from college to work as a field agent for Students for Life of America, which is a pro-life organization. At the time, they had a field agent program where they would send people by themselves off to a two-state region. And the, the goal of the program is for the field agent to start as many pro-life college campus groups as they can in one semester. So I took a semester off to do that. Um, pro-life is just something I'm very passionate about. I think that's going to be a big topic of our conversation today. And I met him at his college. He was at a meeting that um, a mutual friend had set up for students who were interested in joining a pro-life group. So it was kind of an exploratory meeting. Um, and that is how we met. And the rest is history. <laughs> how long after that did you end up getting married? So we actually got engaged within months. We got engaged like 10 months later. Um, this is in Florida. I went to Ave Maria and he went to a school on the other coast called Florida Atlantic University. So we were engaged um, pretty shortly, but we waited two more years to get married until I was a senior because I had actually taken that semester off of college with, was my second semester of college. So I had just started college when we met. Um, mm -hmm. And then we were engaged for two years. So we got married uh, senior year in October. He had already graduated and moved over to my coast. And uh, we got pregnant with a honeymoon baby, and it really hasn't slowed down since then. <laughs> yeah, four, four is a lot. I, you guys are working full-time, so I can imagine it's crazy. But hopefully, I mean, at least I know you are in a job that you enjoy and it looks like you've been working basically in, in the pro-life movement since then um i would love to hear what is your fuel for that what is your passion behind why you want to live out your life doing this kind of work yeah so for me um ever since i was a kid and i didn't realize how kind of strange this was at the time growing up but since i was a kid i've always just been like puzzled by the fact that abortion is a thing, that it's going on, that it's common. Um, it, it always seemed like a really clear injustice to me. I felt like um, it was kind of similar to being someone who was growing up during the time of slavery, who had a strong sense of justice, you know, just to look at slavery like William Wilberforce or something and say, wow, this is an injustice. I have to do something about it. Um, to me, it's so clear that abortion is the greatest injustice that's going on in the modern time. And so um, for whatever reason, I guess God just put that on my heart at a young age that that was what I wanted to do. And I've been really fortunate because I've had opportunities since childhood to explore that field and to be involved with different pro-life organizations and kind of get a feel for um, all the different kind of roles that exist in the pro-life movement. And ultimately, I currently have landed at Human Coalition. I'm the communications director for Human Coalition's sister organization, Human Coalition Action. And so what we're doing at Human Coalition is serving abortion-seeking women. So the women who might otherwise be ending up at Planned Parenthood for an abortion, we're able to connect with them, figure out what is that crisis that's driving them to seek an abortion in the first place, and, and um, really serve their needs, serve their families, get them off to a good start. And at Human Coalition Action, the sister organization, we're able to bring that client service aspect to the attention of the culture and the legislature and politics and say, how can we 
as individuals like you and me do something at a grassroots level and a political level to affect change on behalf of those women and especially their preborn children. And how do you guys connect with women who are in the position of actually making that decision? So we are able to connect with women when they're searching for an abortion. They will put in keywords online and they will, if they are able to, they'll see our ads. And so they'll call us looking for information um, and resources. So we're able to connect with them that way. And what we found what's really at the heart of a woman's search for an abortion is fear and a sense that she can't carry the child to term for whatever reason. And it's so important to be able to get at the heart of each individual woman's unique needs and not just to look at them as a monolith of abortion-seeking women, but to identify what's going on in your life. I mean, we will have women contact us who are being abused by their partner. Some of them have substance abuse issues. A lot of women just feel financially unstable. Um, their parents are pressuring them. Their employer or their teacher is pressuring them and telling them, you won't be able to achieve your dreams if you carry this pregnancy to term. They might be homeless, um, just facing multiple levels of instability. It could be one dominant thing that's going on or a combination of smaller things. Um, so it's really just important to be able to talk to them one-on-one -on -one and say, what's going on? Let's get them plugged into their local community, get them set up with resources, quarterback services to them that might be available through their local nonprofits and government agencies, make sure they have insurance and then OBGYN. There's just so many things that go into helping to take care of women. Uh, but what we find is when, when you're able to step in that gap and tell someone you're not alone, uh, we're going to make sure that you're set up not just to carry the baby to term and give birth, but to thrive as a family. I mean, most of these people that come to us already have other children. They're not just looking out for their current pregnancy, but they're thinking about their other children and their ability to thrive with those children as well. So we're trying to look at her life as a whole and her family as a whole um, integrated and see how we can help and what resources she might not have access to that we can help break down the barriers to. And do you find that a lot of people really don't have the knowledge that these resources are available. I hear that a lot because I'm so sort of ingrained in knowing what's going on with the pro-life movement and what resources are available. I forget that it's really not common knowledge that there are places like Human Coalition and local pregnancy centers that are there to help and people just don't realize it. That's so true. Um, our culture is very dominated by the Planned Parenthood narrative, which says you can't do it to women. There is no help available for you. I mean, think about it. Planned Parenthood wouldn't be able to sell abortions if women knew that they didn't have to choose abortion, if they knew what was out there. So it's really Planned Parenthood's MO to kind of make sure that that information is not widespread. And Planned Parenthood and its allies are a behemoth force in the culture. They're involved in politics, they're involved in media, they're involved in culture. And so it really is fighting kind of upstream, trying to um, break down that narrative and to tell people what Planned Parenthood is offering you is not the only thing that is available. And that can be a challenge, but we're really committed to keep going with that message and making sure that women know what's available to them uh, until abortion is unthinkable and unavailable in our culture. 
And we believe that's possible. That's a big piece of why the grassroots are so important because it can't just be these pro-life organizations and pregnancy centers that are getting that message out there. It has to be everyone at the grassroots level, you and me, we have to be out there telling women that this is available because that's the only way that the pro-life movement can really compete with that narrative that Planned Parenthood is deceptively disseminating in the culture. Yeah, I mean, I, I love how you're talking about this because you know the um, kind of some of the lies that are out there about pro-lifers that are very uh, pervasive in culture about how people will say um, we are anti-woman, anti-choice, anti-healthcare. And I think it's it's just so important to emphasize that groups like yours and pretty much any pro-life group I've ever been associated with are so so concerned with the mom, so concerned with the family. Like it's yeah. not, I mean, yes, it's about the baby. Of course we want to save the baby, but it's, it's a comprehensive care and love for the person as a whole. And so I think sometimes that's really missing. And I think it's very, it's very disingenuous sometimes and hard to hear from people that, you know, don't agree with us on this, you know, to hear like, words and things lobbed at us as if we are, you know, uncaring and unloving. And we know that's not true. And, you know, you, you can't take that to heart, but it's, it's tough when that line kind of gets out there and other people who may not be as, as intimately involved in the conversation hear that and maybe think it's true. Um, so I love yeah. that you're really emphasizing how important it is to, to, to care for and really think about it. Um, it's not just before birth. Like there are so many resources that are there after birth. And, you know, pro-lifers are the people on the forefront of adoption and foster care and um, all the things that you might need in that first year, especially of a baby's life. So um, so I think that's really awesome. Now you guys have, I was looking at your website, and it looks like you have sort of like a six-part strategy, and that may be the side of the organization you're not working with, but um, I love that it's kind of broken down like that. Can you explain some of the ways that you're, that you guys do your outreach? Yeah, so we have multiple divisions within Human Coalition. We're really focused on that client and serving her needs, and I just want to go back to what you were talking about a minute ago. You know, I think what people often in the culture don't see or, or understand about pro-lifers is that what drives us to want to rescue the child from abortion is a, this deep-rooted belief in human dignity that every single person is made in the image of God, even though we might express that in different ways. Every human being is so worthy of human rights and love and dignity and respect. And so that's what drives us to want to not only rescue the child, but to serve the family to make sure that women aren't being dehumanized. And we truly believe that women are being dehumanized when they're being told by the media and by the abortion industry that the only solution to their problem is to kill their children. How is it respectful of a woman's dignity to say that the price of her freedom can only be bought with the blood of her child? So what we're doing in rescuing children is really integrated into a whole worldview that says, the human being is created in the image of God, and we'll do whatever we can to serve that human dignity in every person. It just happens to be that abortion is the most pressing and urgent and devastating um, violation of human dignity that's going on in our culture. So I, I really love how you um, expressed that, and I want people to know when they look at the pro-life movement um, that the narrative that they're hearing from the culture at large is 
really a purposeful misrepresentation of who we are and what we believe that's meant to discredit us so that women will continue to buy into Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry's narrative. Now, when it comes to what Human Coalition is doing, we're focused on uh, serving clients who are seeking abortion. And so our divisions are kind of focused on optimizing that. How can we best serve women and rescue children? So we're looking at um, analyzing data about women who are seeking abortion and data about what their needs are. Um, we are trying to focus on how to engage the culture and the media. So we have divisions that are looking at how do we bring this pro-life message to the biggest audience possible? How do we share the research and education that we've all um, acquired within the pro-life movement? It's such a powerhouse of knowledge and information and research that can be difficult to reach the general public with. And then how do we um, scale that so that we can ultimately overtake Planned Parenthood and overtake the abortion industry and let everyone know that abortion isn't necessary. In any case, there's always uh, something better there for women. Um, and that's what our, our divisions are really focused on. Okay. Um, now, you are active on Twitter, and I know that you have uh, gone head-to-head -head with people on certain conversations. Just, you know, things get really heated online sometimes. Mm -hmm. How do you approach those kinds of conversations? Because I've seen you talking it out with people and, you know, it's hard because people are mean um, mm -hmm. and they will say anything to you on Twitter. Um, but I feel like you, uh, I've seen you be pretty committed to a conversation that actually has substance. Um, how do you deal with those kinds of things? How do you actually keep doing it? Because I have to, I, I have to stop. Like I cannot even get into those conversations because yeah. it upsets me so much. So talk, talk to me about that part. So I think it's important first to identify your audience. Um, so what I and I'm not, I'm not perfect at this. If you go through my Twitter history, you'll see plenty of instances of me being snarky when it wasn't necessary or getting frustrated. But what I aspire to do is to recognize whether the person is just trying to debate abortion for entertainment's sake and isn't really looking to change their position, which is fine, but I kind of try to just scroll past that these days um, because it's not a good use of my time and it's not going to make for a fruitful debate, debate to the audience, which I view the audience as hopefully people that are through Twitter kind of lurking and trying to figure out what do I believe about abortion and which side is correct on this and that's genuinely reading uh, these threads with an eye to figuring out what the truth is. And so uh, when I do find a person who seems to be genuinely seeking the truth, um, first of all, I try to listen to them because even though I know I will never change my position to believe that abortion is right, I've truly found that in listening to people who support abortion, um, that's opened my eyes to nuances and um, details that actually are really important to understand that I haven't always understood. And so really going into a conversation with a desire to grow closer to the truth while not abandoning my values is kind of a principle that I, I'm trying to start with. Um, and so to just yeah. respect people and listen to them and really hear where they're coming from more than trying to win a debate because um, you can't win a debate on Twitter. It's like not a thing. <laughs> so <laughs> not possible. You have a, yes, you can try to have a conversation that brings both sides closer to the truth and hope that whoever is reading that um, is being edified by it in some way and is growing closer to the truth themselves. So it requires 
some level of humility and that's really hard. And I, like I said, I've failed at that many times in the past. Um, but I have pulled away from Twitter, uh, in the last month or so. Um, I think that there's a season for it. And then there's a season when you need to pull back at times and say, this isn't the best use of my time. Um, or it's just overwhelming and, and just recognizing whatever your personal mental health needs. Um, and so, yeah, I'm with you at the moment. I'm not, I'm not really engaging um, on politics or abortion right now on Twitter, but when I do, that's kind of how I try to approach things. Yeah. I mean, people will say, Oh, Twitter is a dumpster fire and it, it is, you know, a lot, mm-hmm. but I have found because I'm very conscious of being respectful and civil. Um, and I, again, like if you can't, my Twitter history is deleted uh, because I deleted it from, since I started Twitter in 2008, I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know what I said in 2008 and I don't want anyone else to know, you know, cause just who knows. Right. But, um, but I, and so in the past, like probably first half years I was on there, I'm sure that I was way more sarcastic and not very, as kind as I would would be now, but now I am very conscious of it, always respectful, and I have I have had some conversations to where right, like no one no one's mind has been changed, but at the end of the day, people have said thank you for being respectful and uh, thanks for talking with me about this, like not being mean, and I really find that really heartwarming <laughs> when that yes. happens, just because it is so rare and you're just so used to seeing just the vitriol. And um, I just enjoy being able to do that. And and sometimes people will start off very hostile to me, but then when they see that I, and, and I'm not talking about just abortion, this could be like whatever topic, but, uh, but, but then they see how I'm responding and then they start to respond in kind. And I start thinking like, you know, they say it's not possible to have civility online, but it is. <laughs> so it is. Um, yeah. So, so I've really, I've really enjoyed that. Um, And I love what you said about nuance, because I think that's always key. Um, I I wanted to ask you what you thought about this. One thing that we always see um, when it comes to debating abortion, you know, of course, like, well, first of all, I want to say like 80% of Americans believe there should be restrictions in the third trimester and like 60% in the second trimester. Is that line up with what you know? Yeah, I think if you look at all the polling and kind of an aggregate, what you find is that there are kind of the two poles of about maybe 15 to 20% of Americans who think abortion should either be totally banned or totally unrestricted. And then in the middle, you have this giant pot of people that believe in restrictions. And the further along in pregnancy you get, the more consensus there is that, yeah, abortion right. should not be legal here. Yes. Right. And and so I think, first of all, that narrative is not very prevalent in the media. Um, you don't hear that from a lot of places, but that's actually true. And I, I wrote about p- part of that recently in, in an op-ed just talking about how none of the Democrat candidates, well, only Tulsi Gabbard and, um, and um, Amy Klobuchar support any restrictions and only in the third trimester. And like none of mm-hmm. these beliefs line up with the actual American people that are going to be voting. And I just think that's so weird that none of them, because they can't possibly all actually stand there. Like it's got to be politically motivated in some way because it wouldn't make sense like statistically. But my point is that whenever we get down to the nitty gritty talking about restrictions, especially in the third trimester, you hear a lot of really horrific stories about families that have fatal diagnoses um, where they don't, that they have a pregnancy that they want, but the child is, I, I don't know, just some horrific circumstance that nobody would ever want to experience. And we hear 
this is why we have to have abortion legal and for, for all of nine months, because these people need these abortions. And so that I get, I get kind of stuck there because of course, like nobody wants anyone to be in that kind of situation and whether or not an abortion is actually required. Um, maybe it's something, something a doctor has recommended. I don't know. Like, I'm not going to put myself in that place, but what I don't, I guess I get stuck because I'm like, well, I don't necessarily think that those are the people that should be affected by this. Are there not exceptions for those kinds of situations? Like, why should it be legal until the end of nine months for everyone when that's not the case for everyone? Do you, am I missing something in that like conversation? Yeah, I think people use those quote unquote hard cases of fetal anomaly and rape um, or what if the woman gets pregnant and then gets diagnosed with cancer and they use those very, very rare hard cases to justify the abortion on demand through all nine months of pregnancy um, when in reality the vast, vast majority of abortions are committed on perfectly healthy children who were conceived in consensual relationships. Um, and are simply viewed as an inconvenience or quote unquote unwanted. Um, so yeah, those those cases are really used and abused to justify uh, something that those cases wouldn't argue for. So there's a huge disconnect. Um, obviously, I don't think that abortion should be legal or viewed as culturally acceptable in any case because it's never necessary. Um, but those hard cases. I would be okay having a conversation and working through those hard cases if there was intellectual integrity in the argument that those are the cases we're arguing for. But the reality is those are the cases that are really being used and abused. Those families' tragic stories and those women's tragic stories are being used and abused to justify um, abortion on demand from day one of conception through the ninth month of pregnancy. And that's yeah, really I mean, unfortunate. I think that those are, yeah, I think we have conversations about those and that should be something on the table. And, you know, people will also say in that same breath, you know, okay, well, 98% of abortions happen in the first trimester, which is true. But that being said, uh, there's still thousands <laughs> you know, I don't know how right. many per year that are done in second and third, but like, yeah, so those lives matter and deserve a law to protect them. Uh, and I don't understand how people just brush that off when many other minuscule things have laws and, you know, conversations surrounding them. So I don't know, that just, that just bothers me because it, it's pro, as a, as a pro-lifer, like I am not, I am not a heartless person who wants a family to have to deal with some some horrific situation where they can't, you know, do what their doctor tells them in the like where their child has like already died in the womb or something. Like, I don't even understand mm -hmm. those cases when I hear them sometimes. I think, well, what do you mean? Like, how could you, you know, so I think there's misunderstanding there and people focus on those, like you said, those hard cases when that's really not the main point of the conversation or what anyone's truly actually arguing about at all. Yeah, um, for sure. And I mean, it might be worth just, just laying out a couple of things here for listeners who may not know. So in the case of a fatal fetal diagnosis, um, the argument is that it's kind of a eugenics argument um, or a, a merciful euthanasia argument saying that it's more merciful to end the child's life than to, to potentially have the child experience suffering. 
Um, so that kind of, it kind of draws out a difference in worldview between people who believe that life is sacred and it's not our, our role to take it and people who think that uh, maybe life is more of a utilitarian um, concept. But the reality is what most people don't know about is there is perinatal hospice. And I think the website is perinatalhospice.org if you want to learn more about this. Um, there are opportunities to carry that child to term, to be supported at the delivery, to have the baby's burial planned for and, and taken care of ahead of time, to have the emotional support. And the reality is when you're able to deliver a child um, and have that grieving process at birth, um, whether it's stillbirth or live birth, and then you lose the child within hours or days of the birth, that is more psychologically healthy for the family. And so knowing about things like perinatal hospice, that should be something that's culturally mainstream. Instead of this mm -hmm. conversation where we all just kind of accept the premise that to die is better than to live with suffering. And so we need to yeah. be talking about the alternative. What if we don't abort the child? Is the alternative just that the child will die in excruciating pain, be carted off at birth, and then the parents are left heartbroken? No, that's not the other outcome. The other outcome is perinatal hospice. And so we need to be honest about these conversations. And if the abortion movement were genuine in bringing up these hard cases, they would be willing to talk about and, and debate out the nuances of well, what about perinatal hospice? But the reality is, like like we said, they're using these cases to kind of try to justify an entire worldview that doesn't jive with American uh, opinion on abortion. Yeah, that's so, I have never heard of that, and I think that's really interesting, and it goes to what you and I were talking about before we started recording about the cuddle cots and about um, a kind of a huge change in culture surrounding newborn death care when a baby is stillborn or when a baby has sort of an or suffering from an abnormality like that for example I was just talking to I had another podcast guest um, Brooke Martin who lost her baby to Ann and Beckley and um, you know she carried the baby to term and she was telling me you know they basically offered her termination the moment she received the diagnosis when she was 13 weeks pregnant and that apparently is the norm in those situations and a, a mother is just so overwhelmed in that moment I can't imagine trying to make that decision like I'm about to cry just thinking about it um, and so to be offered options and to be given education and like maybe even a story about another mom that's been through this um, I could see that being so powerful and so important and not not to say that necessarily they have to choose that but to be given the information and to make it yes. so much more than normal like you were saying like that seems like so important and part of the uh, story that I'm writing right now about this very thing is how like you said psychologically healing how spiritually healing and mentally healing it is to be able to spend that time with a child after birth even if they're stillborn and how that is helping families and bringing them together and really giving them a sense of peace that they couldn't couldn't have any other way um, so I think that's really interesting and you know I of course, I've never been in that situation, so I cannot speak as someone who has. But I've spoken now to, to several moms who've been in that situation, and um, I've gotten some perspective on it. And so I just, you know, I just love the idea of having that option and just more education and information presented in those kinds of situations. Yes, for sure. Um, and this, this all harkens back to the kind of the fundamental flaw in the abortion movement is that it hinges on 
women not knowing what's available to them and it hinges on exploiting their fears and even even doctors and geneticists and OB-GYNs um, can sometimes fall prey to just exploiting someone's fear and then the situation ends up in an abortion when that is not what needed to happen. So pro-lifers, we're trying to rescue the child, yes, but we're also trying to champion things like informed consent and making sure that women aren't just having to make a decision based on fear. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how are you guys feeling at the Human Coalition and personally um, in terms of optimism and what the future holds? I feel personally very optimistic. Um, I think it's kind of my natural personality is to be optimistic about abortion, um, but I also see a lot of a lot of promise and hope for the future in America. Um, technology, it can't be denied what technology has done for the pro-life movement. Um, the, at 1973, when Roe v. Wade was handed down, uh, Americans understood that life in the womb was a human life and that it was growing and moving. But today, you can literally put a video camera in the womb and show a woman what is going on. You can use 40 ultrasounds. I mean, there's there's technology literally through um, an organization that I'll think, think of the name of, but they have camera imaging of prenatal development that's just incredible. Um, and so there's no denying at this point that what is in the womb is a human being. And so to me, that presents a great sense of hope because the education piece is just fully there now. Um, and I think that is what kind of puts that pang of conscience on a lot of people who are kind of in that so-called mushy middle that, uh, I don't know if I would have an abortion, but I don't really think it's right. You know, there's a lot of people in America who are that way. And I think it's largely because of the technology and the education. Um, President Trump has appointed many pro-life judges to courts. He's appointed pro-life Supreme Court justices. So in the um, area of abortion that kind of hinges on court rulings, that is promising. There's so much more to be done at a government level, but that's one piece that gives me hope. Um, and I do think that the pro-life movement um, is ready and willing to see abortion be consigned to the ash heap of history where it belongs and that once we get that grassroots piece really firmly in place and really empower the average everyday American to feel like they can do something um, without having to work full time in the pro-life movement, I think that's going to be huge. So there's so much work to be done, but I and so many other people are here for it. We're buckled down for the long haul um, and, and we're ready to see it ended. And I think that ultimately, I think abortion will be something that we look back on in horror like we now look back on the Holocaust and slavery and the civil rights injustices that our country has seen and so many other yeah. injustices that have been ended, genocides. I think we're gonna look back on abortion and remember it in the, in the same breath as those other injustices, but we can't start celebrating yet because we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, and if someone wants to get involved with you guys, what, would, what should they do? So the, if they want to be involved at a grassroots political level, um, that would make my heart sing. If they want to visit hucoaction.org, that's H-U-C-O action.org. If they want to find out how Human Coalition serves abortion-seeking clients and how they can support that mission of rescuing children and serving families, that website is humancoalition.org. 
pro-lifeprojects.org. So that's two really great resources to get started. But you know, the whole pro-life movement has so much to offer. Liveaction.org is a great place to go to get educated. If you want to learn about what abortion does to a child, abortionprocedures.com is another great website to use. Students for Life, if you're a student on a college campus, studentsforlife.org, get a college group started or become part of one that already exists. Um, there's so many there's so many options. Whatever your kind of proclivity and talent is as an individual, you can put that to use in the pro-life movement. Put the bumper sticker on your car, wear the t-shirt. Don't be afraid of uh, the backlash because you can do it. And there's so many people in the United States that are willing to stand with you and fight the good fight, even in the face of persecution. All right, Lauren, that was Awesome. Thank you so much. I have a few end of podcast questions. I, did I send these to you? I think I did. Yes. Okay. Well, I always like to know who is someone that you consider a role model or inspiration in your life and, and what you're doing? Wow. That's a great question. So a role model for me would be uh, the saints. So I'm a Catholic. And so this kind of changes for me on a day-to-day basis. I can look to Um, all these different stories of the saints that we have that have gone before us and maybe people who were like me, like St. Gianna, who was a mom. Um, She had a bunch of children. She worked full time. So a lot of times I'm thinking about St. Gianna these days and how she ended up pouring out her life on behalf of her children and just trying to fight the good fight, like what I'm trying to do. So yeah, I would, not one in particular person, but the saints in general um, are a big, big help to me getting through the day. Okay. And if you could have dinner or drinks with any celebrity or just anybody, who would it be Mm -hmm. and why? Well, I'd like to tell you one living and one deceased, if that's okay. (laughs) Okay, great. Perfect. So the deceased would be Archbishop Fulton Sheen, who had a TV show. A lot of people might or might not be familiar with him, but he was around in the 50s and 60s very prominently in the media. Um, And I would just love to have dinner with him to figure out how he made the message of like hope and Jesus so appealing to a mainstream audience because I find that so fascinating. And then alive, I would just really like to have dinner with Jimmy Fallon because he seems like very genuine (laughs) and genuinely hysterical to me. And I feel like it would just be really fun and I feel like I'd be laughing the whole time. And uh, yeah, for some reason, I really like Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> <laughs> like the saints and then Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> hey, I'm a well-rounded awesome. person. What can I say? <laughs> yes. Uh, what, um, any books or podcasts that you could recommend to us? Well, this one, obviously, people need to listen to this podcast every day. But oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> other than your podcast, so I'm one of those people that's actually a big fan of Ben Shapiro. I know that's probably going to lose me like half of my potential um, supporters at this point. But we've, I really, we've had a few people say him. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I really like his perspective. I feel like he lays out the facts. And there are times when I, I don't agree with his conclusions. But I feel like whenever I listen to his show, he gives me the information I need to make an informed decision about what I think. And so that's why I kind of appreciate his take. Yeah. Any books? Oh, a book. Let's see. I uh, really am a big fan of this author called Michael O'Brien, who is published by Ignatius Press. So really anything he writes, that's kind of my escape book. He writes fiction, um, and that's really the fiction author that I turn to for uh, a little reprieve when I need it. All right. 
Well, thank you so much, Lauren, for just giving us all that great information and just sharing your passion about pro-life movement with us. Really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Erica. I appreciate you. Well, thanks for listening to today's chat with Lauren. You guys, I hope you'll check out the Human Coalition. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving me a rating and review on iTunes. Or if you subscribe to the podcast, you'll be the first to get it um, when the episodes release every morning. I guess if you're not a subscriber, it can take basically all day for them to upload to your um, to your iTunes. So become a subscriber. You don't have to worry about that. If you'd like to join my email list, uh, head to ericaanderson.com. And there's a little box at the top that lets you do that. All right. Thanks for being here. I love you guys. And I'll see you next time.
This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.